kind of see these two things, sound doctrine and good works. Those, that, that runs through this, this book if you were to read through it and study it. And you could mark it, and I would encourage you as we read through and study, as you're doing on your own, to mark maybe in a distinct way sound doctrine and then good works. Now, it, it, sometimes I think, you know, even the first time I studied, I thought, how would you define doctrine? We would just say it is teaching. So if we said the doctrine of God, we'd say the teaching about God. You say the doctrine of Scripture, we're talking about the teaching about Scripture, from Scripture. And when you do that, uh, just to remind you, when we read a catechism, we would say uh, we are usually unpacking certain doctrines. It starts with the doctrine of Scripture, goes to the doctrine of God. We see the Trinity, we see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Spirit, uh, we see the work of the Son. We would say, you know, all those things are laid out. So it's like the summation of teaching and sound teaching, which is kind of the idea of healthy teaching, right teaching. Teaching that reflects the biblical uh, uh, things laid out in Scripture. So it's just important, I think, we understand that. Now, uh, one of the things, too, is though that you can't just say, uh, I have this knowledge of uh, 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 this doctrinal kind of framework, and I have a healthy understanding of that. To, to rightly understand it in Scripture is to live in light of it. And so one of the things you see, like in James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, he speaks of a man who looks and hears the word and is not a doer. He hears it, but he's not a doer. He looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. But the Scripture tells us, but the one who looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not just a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in what he's doing. And so I think it's important, listen, if you go to this church, you're really good at listening, or maybe you're in Bible studies with other people and you're good at hearing but not doing, that is a grave danger. I mean, that is a very frightening thing, a very frightening place to be in. You understand maybe doctrine, you do not live it. It's not experiential knowledge, and that is very, very, very scary. And here's the thing, it is so scary that I would say if you are, your actions are not following what you say you believe, I would not give you confidence that you're a Christian. I wouldn't. I would not, if I were to sit down with you and you say, hey, I'm living this wild lifestyle, doing what I want, and, or you just say, I don't say it, but that's how you live. And you say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I believe that Jesus is coming again. I would say, you better be afraid when He returns. He's coming in wrath to judge the wicked and rebellious. And your life seems to be following that pattern. So I I just think it's important to stop there and just say, because it's evident to me, and this is the thing to just think about, when Paul writes this letter, often he will start with, sound doctrine or the kind of this body of teaching and then apply it in his books in this book it seems that he starts with life and then tells you how the life is informed by the word or the doctrine so what i mean by that is he'll say hey this is how you're supposed to live and then he'll say here's the grounds the basis behind why you can live this way and why you should live this way so it's a really heavy emphasis on the way you live so I just kind of want you to get that, because that's very important, I think, to understanding this book and kind of grasping that. Now, um, 
we just know just quickly that, that things were out of order. Uh, recently, Anna and I were at a hotel, and we uh, and she said, go get me some ice, and I was so happy, dutifully, kind of went to get ice. I get there, it's out of order, the, the ice machine is, and so then I want to go to the other end, they're like, oh, that one's messed up too, and so I had to go down another floor and find the ice machine and come back, all happy, joyful that I was able to serve my wife in that way. Well, maybe not, but it was still one of those things in my mind. It's like, I hate things broken. Why can't they get anything right? Fix it. There's an element to where in this church, things are broken, and they need to be fixed and repaired and straightened out. And so Paul, what he does is, is he's going to say, listen, Titus, go in and straighten these things out and model for the leaders what it means to straighten them out. And so he says in Titus 1.9, you need to be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict. He's going to set up leaders that can do that. And so what, what, why is he doing that? He's doing that because there are these false teachers within the context of the church who are speaking things that are not true from Scripture. They're speaking the traditions of men, and then they're living lives that do not reflect the Gospel and, and do not reflect the things that, that they should. And so it's important, I think, just to see that so that when we get to this book here, in, it, to chapter 2, verses 1-10, through 10, we say this is the part where he's going to exhort the church in sound doctrine. In 1, 10 through 16, he refuted those who contradicted it. In, in, in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he's going to say, here is things that are fitting for sound doctrine. So let's look at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, I think the best way to understand this little verse right here, just to kind of get it in your mind, is, is teach the things that are suitable for sound doctrine, that are fitting for sound doctrine. I think the sound doctrine is going to be dealt with more fully in verses 11 through 14, and the behavior that goes with it is verses 1 through 10. So just, just, or you just kind of think of it that way. I think it's helpful. It's like saying, um, you know how when you go to a, a, a place and you say, I wear this certain suit, and put, give me a tie that fits that. Or I have a certain thing, give me some shoes that match it. So they don't look out of character. He is saying, in the same way, he's going to say, here, he's going to lay out the doctrinal basis in 11 through 14 of this chapter, but then he's going to say in 1 through 10, here's the clothes that go with it. And it's just, I think it's important that we see that. Because doctrine not applied in real life is a major problem. And so you just kind of get that in your mind as you're looking at this. So, that what is the lifestyle that matches up with what we say we believe about God? You might ask it like this, what type of behavior would be fitting for, uh, for Jesus who gave His life for us? If we're walking with Him, what would be a fitting lifestyle? Another thing would be, what kind of actions would be uh, fitting uh, of those who the Spirit dwells in? Like, what would that look like? So, I think that's important to say, okay, we're going to start with behavior. Next week, we're going to look at the basis for that, glance at it today. But just notice here as we go forward in verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. To be sober. Like in our culture, if you say, if somebody came up to you and said, I'm sober, it implies that before... Maybe they were in a drunken state. Or maybe they were saying, um, I'd lived a lifestyle of drunkenness. I was a drunkard. Now, three years later, or the last three years, I've been sober. 
And what we, we would talk about is that when somebody says that, we understand is they were, they were under the influence of alcohol in such a way that they got drunk and maybe stayed in that drunken stupor. I remember uh, I was reading an article about George Jones not too long ago, and there was a song that, oh man, now it just slipped my mind. Put it in my notes. Now, there's this song where he talks about um, uh, He Stopped Loving Her Today, that song. And there's, this, there's a phrase in there where he has to speak. And for the longest time trying to record that, nobody could get it recorded because he, he would slur when he spoke, but he could sing and it sounded fine. So they waited all this time hoping that one day he wouldn't be drunk and they can get it where they could just, you know. And so I think it's important we understand this. These people are not under the influence of other, anything other than being controlled by the Lord. They are under His control. They, their lives are somewhat of a soberness. It's, there's, they're clearly thinking. They're not easily uh, able to lose their cool because their, their mind is under control. Over time, you see that people, maybe they're sober-minded, they, they're, they're focused, and they have clear thinking. They're not, they're not uh, taken over by anything else, not, not their anger, not some kind of substance. Not, you can make a long list. They're sober-minded. The next thing we see, they are dignified. This has the idea of somebody worthy of honor or respect. There's certain elements where you see a dignified man. There's an element of age and wisdom that should cause you to give someone respect. I remember, uh, and I've probably mentioned this before, I had a friend in Africa that you would not, uh, with older men in the room, when they were together, they would typically eat together at a table, separated from the rest of the kind of community. They're sitting there at a table eating. And you, you, unless you were asked to come be involved in that, that discussion, I mean, they, they, you would not go there because those men were there. They were held in high esteem and honor. They were dignified people. They were dignified men. Now, here's the thing. Just because you're older, it does not mean you're dignified. And just because you might look dignified, you've got gray hair, cool glasses, you know, it doesn't mean you're necessarily dignified. There's this element to where they are worthy of honor and respect. They're worthy of being honored because of their life, because of the way that they have lived. There's a dignity to them. Self-control. They should, there's an element to where an older man, he's, he's come, especially a spiritually older man that's, that's a godly man, he, he is able to put on the brakes uh, of his passions and desires, you would say. He is not quick to run after the things, that the impulses of his heart, or whatever you want to call it, of his mind. He's not quick to go after that. He's able to restrain that. He, he puts on the brakes. He pulls back the reins. And that's something that you see here. Um, I, I was, it's interesting. Uh, William's like a wonderful little boy, and we really enjoy him. But he does like quickly, if he doesn't get what he wants, he can burst into tears and cry. And oh, and the other day I was like, act like a man. And it's like, he's a baby. But there's this element where I'm saying, William, a man restrains himself. I feel like crying today too. But I restrain myself. Every time I feel something, I can't act upon it. Now I'm not going to say to him, men never cry, something stupid like that. I won't say that. But I will say to him, listen, every time you feel something, 
It's not worthy of you running after it. You've got to learn to put on the brakes. And sometimes you meet an older man who's bitter and ornery and ugly and cries all the time and gets mad and runs their mouth. You meet an older man like that, you say, grow up. Grow up. Be self-controlled. You're not to just run after everything that you feel. Every time you feel something, you should not respond. Part of maturity is self-control. Actually, I was listening to some of the discussion group over here this morning, and they were talking about how that's mentioned in every one of these. There's an element to where that should be the pattern. And I think when you're reading this, you would say that each time you're reading one of these things, you're saying these are the models of what we're striving towards. So he's laying that out. There's a model for us. Then he says, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Again, the word sound kind of has this idea of being healthy. Have a healthy faith, a healthy love, a a healthy kind of steadfastness. So it's kind of this thing of like, there's an element to where this man has understood the faith. When we talk about the faith in that sense, it would be like, He's got a good understanding of who God is and who we are and what sin is. and He's got a good grasp of that in his head. But there's also, this kind of moves forward, is he's a man who walks by faith. It's one whose God is in charge of his life and he's submitting to that. He has walked under the control of the Lord and he's spent years doing so. We should, we should long for God to raise up men in our church that grow into the stature of older men, which, by the way, some people argue that this might be a man that's 60 years and upward. I don't know if you can say that's just... I mean, I don't know if I could go there completely, but I would just say he is, he's a man who's lived a long time and he has a healthy faith. He's walking by faith. He's not walking by fear. I, it's interesting to me when I, I was thinking about this this week is like, um, the culture, as it changes or things in the world change, sometimes our, our, we could be very fearful. The economy changes, we're fearful if this changes, if, you know, just a list of things. And a man who has a healthy faith is one who says, We're not shaken. I am trusting in God. I've trusted Him all my days. And really, I've lived long enough to see that He is with us and He will provide for me and for my family. And He looks at a younger man and said, and He will provide for you. He is with us. Now, I was thinking about um, Caleb in the Scripture in Joshua. When Caleb was like 40 or 45, I can't remember, I think he may have been 45. Uh, They were about to go into the Promised Land and everybody kind of wimped out. And so Caleb and Joshua had to spend 40 years waiting to enter the land, but God allowed them to live until that day to see it happen. Well, at 85, he asked for the most difficult group of people to fight against into the promised land. He chose the place that was the most horrific, the heat of the battle, because he was ready, as the Scripture speaks, of putting on the armor of God to fight the fight of faith. It is not, listen, as you get older, it is not a time to sit back and do nothing It is a time to aggressively move forward. We need men of courage who have the age that says, hey, we're going to stand firm. You're looking for people like that because you say, as a young man, I look up to someone who is not shaken, but he's founded on the the Gospel. He is walking by faith and he is pursuing things by faith. We, we, We long for that. 
He's love. We see His love here. It says His love for God, we would say, always is growing. He's, 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 he's lived through many different things, and to know the love of God would be precious to Him. He also has a love for the people of God. You meet a man who is, and he loves to see, I would argue that he, he loves the church of God and he would love the young men of the church and invest in their lives. He, he cherishes that. He, he loves to see them growing forward. He wants that. And so I'm always amazed, like, that kind of, um, that, that maybe an older man and an older woman or whatever, they raise their children and then they kind of sit back and do nothing in their latter years. Not this man. He loves his love, grows for the younger generation. He longs to see them grow up in the Lord. My dad and I were talking about this week how difficult it is sometimes to change. As he, you know, you know he's been doing things, there's certain things that he's done his lifetime, he's done. And so. Sometimes it's hard, like say, this is going to look different today. Things might look different in the church, or things might look different in his life, or whatever, and it's hard sometimes to change. And I would just say, um, what we are longing for is people that will grow up, older men that are, that are mature men that say, my love for these people is going to grow because I'm going to strive to do that even in the midst of a different day. We live in a different day. Things are maybe going to look different. This church may look different than what he saw for 30 plus years or whatever and so it's very important that we have older men who are models of sacrificial love for the younger generation and not only love for for God the church but love for their wives love for their children all kinds of examples of love demonstrated through sacrifice towards others steadfastness we see older men are to persevere they're to be models of faithfulness and consistency one, one, one like a person like explain it this way. It's the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty with patience, endurance, fortitude, steadfastness, and perseverance. So, in the face of trouble, you want some people who are not like just bouncing around and afraid, or get so like worried or scared in the midst of things. They are stable in the midst of difficulty. They are patient with what is taking place. They endure. They're steadfast. They persevere. And you long to see that as, as life goes forward, there's a continuation of that. They are known by their example of fixing their eyes on the hope of Christ and nothing shakes them. They are steady. They're steady in their family. They're steady in the church. They long to see Christ and they hope in Him. And even as the tides change and the waves come crashing in, they're steadfast. So we see that. I think it's very important to understand that. We'll keep moving forward. Older women, kind of move the next step here. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Reverent in their behavior kind of has the idea of constantly living their lives in the face of God, before God. Has the idea of, of holiness, it, it, it being in the before the face of God, the presence of God. As they consider Him, listen to this, their tongues, dress, and general attitude should be one of reverence. They welcome what God, the, the role that God has placed them in within the context of their marriage, within the context of their ma- family, within the context of the church. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 real quick with me. 
Very, very, very important passage just to understand and grasp all of these things. But 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, this means that they were converted and, and, and probably their husbands were not. They come to faith and their husbands had not. So that even if, if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or on the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling Him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This passage is focusing in and saying, what does it look like to be a woman who is reverent in her behavior? To to embrace what God has designed her for. Reverence is the opposite of loud and, and, and boisterous, but it's more of a careful and restrained person. She, she is very quick to, 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 to follow like a, before God, to stand before Him and, and in submission and in a place of understanding what He has for her. She says, even to her, towards her husband in the church, wherever you see a reverence in her life, something that God could be honored with, This is something, as the Scripture says, in God's sight is very precious. Very wonderful here. We keep moving. It says they're not slanderers. Slander has the idea of making false and damaging remarks about a person. You can be taken to court over slander. But it's very important. There's often times that it's kind of a form of gossip. At one sense, gossip is just speaking against someone. Just saying things that may even be true. They may be true. But to speak behind someone's back about them and to stir up trouble with others by your tongue. But slander also kind of takes that a step further in that they are damaging things that really are they're not even true. People have a way of making things up and to speak ill of others. And that stuff needs to stop. Because an older woman is to be an example of restraining her tongue. Of speaking truth about people, but not to destroy them, to build up. And so within the church and within your home and all those things, an older woman is to be an example. To to, to be an example of restraining her tongue and honoring people and blessing them with everything she says. And to sit down when she speaks of others to speak in a way that would give grace to those who hear, that would bring joy and honor to someone. Chapter 4 of of Ephesians in verses 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander 
Be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So even if someone wronged you, it's, it's, it's saying, I want to bless them. I want to love them like Jesus loved them. Shocking, I mean, just to think about, like, to embrace that kind of heart. You ever met someone who remembers all the evil things done to them or the perceived evil things done to them? And they become stories that they repeat over and over and over again. It's not the heart that's presented here. She is to remain silent rather than brutally attack someone behind their back to destroy them. An uncontrolled tongue is condemned by God. This thing is important, we see that. So she's embodied those things. A beautiful thing is a model for the younger generations. And I think it's very important. You meet someone that likes to sit over and silently talk about people, and their tongue is like a fire that will spread and destroy. It's a dangerous place. Or slaves to much wine, it says. The idea is to abuse wine. We, we talk about this. As, it's not, I don't think there's anywhere... I mean, throughout Scripture, wine is a blessing. It's never condemned in Scripture. In my, as clear as I know to see when there was like fruit on the vine and they were able to, to make wine, that was a sign of blessing. The abuse of wine is to drink more than you should, to be uh, addicted to it. And so we would say any substance, including drugs or wine or whatever you want to say, that, that you abuse is wrong before God. They're to control their, you say, we would say they're to control their behavior, their tongues, and right here we would say their appetites, their cravings. That, that's kind of the picture here. They're to teach what is good. Uh, you know, when we talk about that, there's just a, a, a large number of things you could talk about in that. But I, mean, I think of Philippians 4.8 where it says, whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think of these things, speak of these things. In that passage, it talks about even grasping those so that you, you won't be anxious. But, but a young, I mean, an older woman is to model that, to teach what is good. Now here's a purpose clause. Just kind of get in your mind. What is, why? That's the question. Why? Why is an older woman to do this? So that she can be an example of that hidden from the world? No, she is to be a model of that both in her life and her teaching she is to train the young women to love their husbands and children. Train has the, training has the idea of practically giving them skills to develop into what they should be. It's not, just, it's not just a model of an example from a distance. It's very close. You get that? It's not from a distance. It's not just saying, listen, I know you see my children, you see my husband, and we're together, and I have pretty good kids. Watch me from a distance. It's not that. It's a very close and intimate training of someone in very clear like directives and skills and helping them develop. I would just say as a younger woman, if you I mean I know I've talked to a lot of younger women say I desire that. I desire that. And I would say then you pursue someone who looks like what you see here. If you see someone that demonstrates what we've seen here, you pursue them for a relationship and try to grow in those areas. 
says to love their husbands. Well, what does that mean? I, you know, watching, I really, with Anna, many times, and I just speak of her because I, one of the things I know that like over and over is that she demonstrates before me a love for me and a love for me outside of our home with others. It's, 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 um, she doesn't speak ill of me. Honestly, she could have reasons to, right? She controls her thoughts. When she controls her thoughts, her tongue is restrained. She thinks, she, she, one of the things, I mean, there's a lot of in our home just her building me up, telling me what, things that, that I think, well, I don't know if that's true, but it's nice to hear. And, and it's one of those things that, like, it, it's, it, a woman that speaks ill of her husband reveals that she has not controlled her thoughts and she is disobeying God. Her disobedience does not affect only herself or her husband, which you destroy your husband with your tongue, it's a major problem. It's a very easy thing to do, is to build, break him down. And, and instead of building up, but it does not only affect herself or her husband, but other women around her. We are to set an example of loving her husband, a woman is, by affirming him personally and publicly. She has to use every opportunity to build her husband up. That's part of it. That's why the Scripture says to respect him. That's why Ephesians 5 says respect him. Because that is a foundational thing in the life of a marriage that a man would receive respect from his wife. It is easy to be disrespectful, but rather here is to be respectful. And that is at the heart of what it is to love your husband. I really believe that. It's in Ephesians 5. It's presented very clearly. That's at the heart of it. So I think it's important that all of the time seeking ways to build up both privately and publicly your husband. And if you don't have something good to say, then don't say it at all. And then find out in your heart, maybe, I know there's some situations that are so messed up, and, and, and I realize that, but for the most part, generally speaking, there are many things that you could find to encourage not only your husband, to encourage your own heart, and encourage other women in this church. As you keep moving, it says to love their children Women, at the very heart, an older woman is to, a Roman is to present that children are not a burden, but a blessing from the Lord. Younger women need to know how to train them in the Lord. This is so practical. Younger women need to grow in a knowledge of what it means to train a child in the Lord. One of the reasons that you've got to think about where this church fits in a culture where people do not demonstrate that where a lot of young women never saw an example of a godly woman in a hostile world. A woman that has never seen uh, the picture that God's designed of what it means to train your children in the Lord, what do they need? They need someone in their life that will show them that. God has given the church as a family to people who are a part of families who do not believe in God and do not obey Him. Or they grow up in a church, sometimes people do this, they grow up in a church where they're, they go to church, but their parents do not model biblical discipleship. They've never seen it. And they need someone 
who will teach them how to raise their children very practically in the Lord. They need to teach them how to pray. They need to teach them about how to discipline their children. They need to teach them how to love them. Maybe how to feed them. There's just all kinds of things. Very practical skills. Verse 5. To be self-controlled, pure, workers working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the Word of God may not be reviled. To be self-controlled. As we've talked about already, the control, putting on the brakes between your passions and desires as you're loving your husband and loving your children. They'd be pure, morally pure. It really has this idea of purity deals with it on the inside and flows out to behavior. Working at home here. It has the idea of managing your household well. Managing your household well. And you think about in this context of this book, we're talking about the household. Talking about older men, older women, younger women, younger men, bond slaves. That's the household. Oftentimes, they didn't all have separate houses. They lived together under one roof. So in here, we're saying manage your household well. In the Scripture, I think it's very clear, just so you, if you think about it, especially like looking at the fallen condition, Adam is condemned. Or, or his, no, I mean, the judgment placed on him was working the, the, the ground would produce thorns and thistles would be tough and by the sweat of his brow he'd make his living. And, 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 and then we see Eve like, like in childbearing. And I would say the whole process of raising a child, that, that would be difficult. And so I think it's important to say that the priority for a husband is to provide for the family's needs and the priority for the wife is to provide a home of stability. Now, we live in a culture, certainly, that is, uh, we live in a two-income culture. And, and I, I think that's, um, there's some real dangers as a result. And I think it's a very important that we take seriously what it says, working at home. And, and, and what we have to do is say, can I manage my household well? Can I raise my children well? Can I train them well and be away from them for long periods of time? And I think each person has to deal with that. I mean, I don't have time to work through all the issues there, but you do have to really not, not take this verse and throw it out, which is very easy because it's maybe uncomfortable. And we have to say, you are as a woman are to be, to be raising your children in the Lord. You're to be taking care of your family. You are to provide for the needs of that home. You are to keep a home that is orderly. A home that, 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 that is something that people that, that, that the family can function in. And, and, and that's a very important aspect of who you are as a person. And it's what God designed. To be kind. It just kind of has, I think, the picture here, and you could put that up with this other part of the verse, but a woman who is kind and good-natured towards is a blessing to her family. Her children will will bless her. Her husband will be able to bless her. Proverbs 31 speaks of one who is kind. In all of these responsibilities, they are great, but she, she embodies those. And it says, and submissive to their own husbands. Again, going back to that issue where he says, love your husband. Show him respect. Honor him. Submit to him. Listen to him. Allow him to lead your, your, your family. 
A wife is to submit to his authority. An older woman should teach younger women how to do this with grace and beauty. Submission, when rightly embraced, is a blessing uh, to others. And it blesses the Lord. And so I think that's very clearly presented here, laid out very well. Now look what it says. That the Word of God, again, another purpose clause, that the Word of God may not be reviled. That has the idea of being blasphemed. That the Word of God may not be blasphemed. Can you believe that? When he's laying this out, do these things so that God's Word will not be blasphemed. It will not be thrown down, trampled, and spit upon. You model this example because in doing so, you are living for God. You are honoring God. Very, very, very serious thing. Verse 6, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I think that this is implied here as we look at this, implied that the younger men have the same responsibility as the younger woman to learn from the older men. There is that picture there. They're not put together in a way that maybe we would order that, but I think it's very clear the self-controlled thing kind of runs all the way through. And I think Paul really, I don't think he has to write out every little detail to to help us understand that in the context here, that, that this family unit is helping one another in the growth in godliness. For, as we think about being self-controlled, uh, we are to be a, a younger man has a tendency to run after whatever he desires. He, he doesn't always restrain himself. You're to be self-controlled. That's no small calling. They're to bridle their passions, as we said earlier. Um, a young man has a very difficult time keeping himself under control, and so he has to strive after that. That means you have to work hard to discipline yourself. And I would just say, and when I think about this, I think he has to discipline himself physically. He has to take care of his body and restrain himself from doing things that would be destructive, like maybe overeating or drunkenness or wild living. He's, excess is a problem for a young man. He needs to be sexually disciplined. Sex and sexual things are reserved for a man and a woman in a context of marriage. And he has to restrain himself from any excess outside of God's design. He needs to be disciplined about how he uses his time. If you're raising a son here, I would say you need to work very hard to help him discipline his time. A young man that sits around and does nothing all the time, it's not preparing him for manhood. Because when he grows up to be a man, he better know how to manage his time. So just dilly-dallying all day, sleeping as long as you want, and just goofing off, that is not setting him up for manhood. He is to be a man. And a man must be dutiful about getting things done. So in his time, in his sexuality, in his physical stature, everything about him, you are raising up a man. In this this culture, it's hard to find him. Because I think a lot of dads or moms or whatever don't understand. He is to be a man. And he is to walk as a man. And he is to live like a man. And if you don't train him up to do that, he will be a boy forever. And you meet a man that's endlessly a boy, that is a curse to society. You are training him to get married, to raise children, 
to get a job, to provide for his family, and to, to be a, 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 some value in the culture. And if you're a man here in stature, but you are not living like a man or acting like a man, God designs you to be a man. And you had better start pursuing those things. It, it, it's, it's, it's really, I just, it's so disheartening today to see to see a culture in that way where men are not what they should be. In verses 7 and 8, it says, Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. I think this implies in my mind, this kind of moves to Titus, but it's, it makes you feel like Titus is also a young man, as was Timothy. And so in this, it's both him, them, Paul speaking to him directly, but also saying, in all of your life as a young man, model the things I'm speaking about. Show integrity in your teaching. Be clear and, and, and really unpack the Scripture as designed. That takes work, Titus. Have courage to preach the word in, in, in a pure and an unadulterated word. Lay out the truth. Be honest in your teaching. Dignity. There's a way in which he would preach and teach that would res- show respect, and it's worthy of the honor of God. And sound speech that cannot be condemned. It, it's a healthy speech. He, he's right on target with what he says. He validates Scripture as he presents the truth. It says, so that, again, another purpose clause, the opponent will, will, uh, may be put to shame. All those who come against you will see your life and doctrine coming together, and it's faithful, and it's God-honoring, and everyone will see it. And he lays that out very clearly. Verse 9, again, we, I know our time's kind of running out here, but verse 9 speaks of bond servants. And, and we talk about this, but large percentage of the people in that culture uh, were bond servants. In this deal, they would have been in the household. And he's saying, listen, you're to be submissive to your masters. This really is kind of the picture of employer-employee relationships. They're to be well-pleasing. When you work somewhere, the employer should have a high regard for you as an employee. They should. You should be well-pleasing. They should be satisfied with your performance because you're doing it as to the Lord. It says not argumentative. Some people love to fight with their employer and stir up strife, but you are not to be in this way. That is not the picture for them. Not pilfering. This has the idea of stealing. And and I'm I'm telling you, uh, you can steal time, energy, items, from your workplace. Some people give nothing at their workplace. They just get by. What a sad picture as a Christian to just get by. They are to work hard and use all of their energy to be a blessing. You should treat it as if it's the Lord's. And I think that's the picture that we see. It is the Lord's business. It is the Lord who reigns over all things. We should do that well as we go into the workplace. It says, but showing all good faith so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To adorn the doctrine of God has the idea of to make it attractive. 
It's to decorate its appearance. It is like if you take your little Christmas tree and you set it out there and you say, there's the Christmas tree, isn't it nice? And then you say, I'm going to adorn it. I'm going to clothe it with something that makes it look greater. God's, the Gospel and the glorious teachings of Scripture are marvelous, but we get to adorn that with our lives to make it look more beautiful, to make it more attractive, to make the world long for something like that. That's what you see. It's very clear and it's such a wonderful thing that you could participate with making God's name more glorious to the world that is watching in the workplace. So as we conclude today, I just kind of this church is a multi-generational family in need of one another to grow up into the people that God has designed us to be. At all different levels, you have a place for growing and understanding and grasping those things. So as we conclude today, I want to read one passage. We'll look at this closer next week. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. What keeps us, what allows us to embody what He's talking about here, it is as we understand the glorious Gospel and we say Christ died, He came, and He came to rescue us from this evil age, from the deeds of this age, and to embody what would be fitting for the doctrine that Christ came to save and rescue us from that condition. It's a beautiful thing that the Gospel is central it is what God has done in Christ to rescue so that we could live in a way that would bless us, bless others, and glorify God. Make the Gospel more beautiful in the eyes of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We just pray that You would open our hearts to see more clearly what You've designed for us. Let us see that it's good. These are not things that are bad for us. These are not things that hurt us. These are things that bless us. These are things that are good for our families. These are things that are good for our church family. Lord, we know that. It's hard for us sometimes to believe it. Because in the world, in this, this age, it's so easy to say, that sounds good in theory. Lord, I just pray You would burden us and help us see that it's good in practice. That it brings honor to You. That it adorns the teaching about You. Rather than blaspheming Your name, that we would bless Your name. Just ask that You would make that more just powerful in our lives. That we might, we might live in a way that would be fitting. And I just ask God that You would, as a church, like, Cause us to love each other enough to help us grow in these ways. In Christ's name, amen.